This morning we are looking at Revelation, and Revelation from chapter 6, verse 15, down to the end of chapter 7, page 1,238. So please um, have your Bible kept open there. And also there's, there's a sermon outline in the intimation sheet you'll have been given, which if you find helpful, um, is there for you to use. This morning, we are taking a break from our series of sermons on Luke's gospel. Throughout this year, we're doing a a 50-sermon mega-series going through the whole of Luke. Um, But this morning, we're taking a break from that because this week um, is a significant week in our congregation in that we have lost uh, an important member. With Archie Boyd's passing, we've lost our senior elder. We have lost our most experienced Christian someone who encouraged us, who gave us great uh, wisdom and spiritual strength. And we mourn his passing, but we don't mourn like those who have no hope, because Archie was a man of hope, hope in God and hope in the gospel. And through that hope, uh, he was a gracious and committed Christian. Uh, So bearing, bearing particularly the Apostle Paul's words in mind, that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. I think it's good for us this morning to take stock and to consider heaven. I want us to spend this morning looking at these verses in Revelation 6 and 7, a chapter where John, who wrote this, receives a vision, a revelation of heaven as the Christian's eternal destiny. And I'd like us to do that simply because we need reminders like this, particularly in the sad moments, in the difficult moments, we need reminders of the reality of heaven, which is there for us in the gospel. And I'm not just saying that as a piece of my wisdom, because I think this is a good idea. I'm saying it because it's, it's God's wisdom. When you look at the context of this book, Revelation, this window into heaven, uh, look at the context in the author's life, John. Um, John, the guy who wrote this, he was an old man in in retirement age. And when you think of all the things that you would like in your retirement, you know, you think of of good health, you think of no big financial worries, you think of a life that's quite comfortable with with grandchildren that, that live near you, you think of living peacefully. Well, it didn't work out like that for John. John was, was an old man, an old Christian, who was taken from his home to be a prisoner um, on a, a penal colony on an island called Patmos. So there you have, you have John, you know, who in our wisdom should be enjoying a peaceful retirement, but he's, he's a prisoner on an island surrounded by crooks and thugs mostly. And the way that, that God encourages John in this tough part in his life is by reminding him of the reality of heaven. And, and John writes down and records that revelation into this book that we're reading just now. And that book was then immediately used by God in, in a context where the church there that received it, the first century church, was struggling, was persecuted. You have this huge crackdown on the church, on Christians. Um, you have Christians being fed to lions in front of crowds for entertainment and people coming and voyeuristically watching this. You have 
Christians being crucified upside down to humiliate them and to make sure that no one else followed them. And it's into that context that in God's wisdom, he gives them a glimpse into heaven to encourage them in, in all their sense of, of loss and, and difficulty, discouragement. He shows them what awaits them for all of eternity. So that's why this morning, on, on this particular week, with, with what has happened, I would like us to look at this chapter in Revelation. We've got four points that we're going through about heaven. The sermon's titled, Heaven is for... Point one, heaven is for those who need not fear God's judgment. Heaven is for those who need not fear God's judgment. When you look at the, the context here, looking at particularly at chapter 6, um, it's a gloomy picture. It's foreboding. It's threatening. You have a chapter that's packed with classic Old Testament imagery in particular because John was Jewish by a background, knew the Old Testament inside out, and it's a chapter full of pictures from the Old Testament of impending destruction and judgment. You have the four horsemen of the apocalypse who are there. Um, they're coming to take peace away from the earth. They come bringing economic judgment. Like in, in verse 6, the poorest of the poor are the ones who mix um, wheat and, and barley together just to make a stomach filler. It costs nothing. The sun turns black. It's, it's this... Um, this gloomy foreboding picture. Death and Hades are unleashed. And in the midst of it all, in verses 9 and 10, we find Christian martyrs who are crying out to God to avenge their blood and to judge the earth. So the picture is one of absolute catastrophe. It's a picture of the end of the world as we know it. And John conveys this, the kind of sense of terror and, and judgment by using a, a word picture where it's like the fabric of, of the universe, of the earth is being ripped apart. You have stars that fall from the sky. You have the sun turning black. You have the moon turning red. He pictures it like geography is being ripped apart with all the islands and the, the, the countries being torn out of their places. A picture of, of catastrophe. And in the midst of that, here's what you find in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, then to the opposite extreme, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. So this list is comprehensive from the highest to the lowest, from kings to slaves. Everyone is terrified. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? When the day of judgment comes, everyone trembles. They're terrified of meeting God. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. It's, it's God's face that they're terrified of. They're terrified of his holiness. They're terrified of his infinite superlative perfection. And they're terrified of Jesus. Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. The lamb here is a reference to, to Jesus. To get that, you have to remember what we were just saying. John is a, is a Jewish Christian. He's writing primarily to Christians who have Jewish backgrounds and who know the Old Testament well. And, and that kind of religion and system, the lamb is a significant, iconic figure. To, to atone for your sin, you take a lamb and you transfer your guilt onto it. You slit its throat, it dies, and you don't die. That's how it works. And that's the kind of 
pointed towards Jesus. Hence, when another John, John the Baptist, sees Jesus, he announces, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the great Lamb, the great sin sacrifice. And these people, having previously rejected him, having rejected Jesus, now fear Jesus' wrath against them. The great day of their wrath has come. It's a bleak picture. And if Revelation was to end at this point, it would be bleak. It would be very bleak. But it doesn't end here, which is the great thing. We go into chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, and so on. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. So you have these four angels at the four corners of the earth, you know, covering everything, who are ready to judge and to destroy. But before they do that, there's another angel that appears, having the seal of the living God. This is a piece of royal imagery. He's there with the seal of God, having been sent by God, with God's authority. And he calls out in a loud voice to these four angels who are ready to destroy and to judge. And he says, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the living God. What he, what he says there, the, the servants of God, the, the Christians, get a seal on their foreheads. And this seal marks them out as belonging to God, as being owned by him, protected by him, spared from this, this judgment. The same picture you find a few chapters on. In Revelation 14, um, you find those sealed by God on their foreheads. And on their foreheads, they have um, the name of God the Father and the name of Jesus, the name of the Lamb. They've got nothing to fear because they're marked out as protected by God, as belonging to him. Verse 4, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now this, this is a verse that, um, that the cults and, and, some, uh, and some Christians even make a real dog's dinner out of, because especially the Jehovah's Witnesses who take this verse out of all context and use it to argue that in heaven there are literally only 144,000 people in heaven. What's the problem with doing that? The problem is that five verses on, in verse 9, John sees a crowd of people in heaven that are so innumerable, a great multitude that no one can count. Uh, also, the problem is that this figure, 144,000, is highly symbolic. And I'll explain how. Um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New, the number 12 is very important. It crops up a lot. Um, God uses this number regularly whenever he wants to emphasize his sovereignty um, over the whole universe. Um, now, this explanation, uh, Hebrew is different from English. And th this is kind of Hebrew background. Although it was written in Greek, John spoke Aramaic which is just like Hebrew. Hebrew is really different from English in many ways. And one of the ways is that it's a really mathematical language, way more so than English. And in Hebrew, you can express a lot and say a lot with numbers in a way that you couldn't do in English. Um, so in the Bible, when, whenever God exerts his lordship and his sovereignty over the earth, he does so using the number 12. Okay, in the Old Testament, you have 12 patriarchs who are the, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, you have, um, in the New Testament, the 12 apostles. 
and the number 12 crops up all the time. Why God uses that particular number, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, there are some very good commentators of the Bible who say that. It's because God is triune. He's three in one. And the number four in Hebrew is the number that tends to represent the whole of the earth, the whole universe, north, south, east, west, the four winds, the four corners. Four times three is 12. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. But God certainly does use this number a lot, 12. And here in, in Revelation, we have the idea of the whole church of Christ in heaven, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, and the whole group of people who do not need to fear God's judgment, th those who go to heaven. And that whole group is expressed using the number 144,000. And I'll explain to you why for John, as a kind of Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking person, it makes perfect sense to express it like that. Because John grew up with Aramaic and with Hebrew, he thinks in a really numerical way with his words. When he thinks of the Old Testament church, he thinks of the number 12, 12 tribes, 12 patriarchs. When he thinks of the New Testament church, he also thinks of the number 12, 12 apostles. And in that kind of Hebrew mindset, if you want to express the idea of these two being together, the normal way you do that is you multiply the two. 12 times 12 is 144. And that's, that's the number that you use to express the 12 from the Old Testament, the 12 from the New, the whole church. So that's 144. It's the number that he would use to express these two together. And if you want then to express the idea that this group of Old Testament and New together is innumerably large, Again, in a Hebrew numerical kind of way, the way that you express that is you multiply the number by a thousand. You know, it's, it's like an English saying, oh, to the nth degree, you know, it just goes on forever. So this is 144 to the nth degree, 144,000. It's not a, a literal strict number. It's, it's symbolic. It's much better in use than if there were only 144,000 in heaven. It's a, a huge number of Old Testament and New Testament believers. Um, these are the people who do not need to fear God's judgment. They are the ones who meet their maker and come before his face and are graciously received and who meet the lamb and do not fear his wrath. Heaven is for those who do not need to fear God's judgment. Point two, as we go through this, heaven is for Christians. Look at verse, chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the, la on the throne and to the Lamb. The thing that's really striking, first of all, in this verse, is how heaven is, is the most socially inclusive place that you could imagine. It's much more socially inclusive than anywhere in this life on the earth. Um, the thing that I love about this is, is exactly that. Whichever, whichever nation you come from, whichever tribe you belong to within your nation, whatever your ethnic background is, whatever language you speak, none of these things bar you from entering heaven. It's not just for, for, for white people or for black people or for Westerners or for people from the Far East, it's for, it's for everyone. It's not just for English speakers or French speakers or, or whatever. It's, for, it's socially inclusive in a way that you do not find 
in, in our world of, of sin-infected human society, which is so fraught with problems in every single one of these areas. Nations, for example, you have xenophobia, you have international warfare, nations that hate each other. Tribes, again, intertribal warfare, gang warfare, people who will not speak to each other because they dress differently and they're from different social groups. Um, in terms of different peoples, the world is full of racism and oppression on that level. Language as well, linguistic and cultural genocide goes on all the time. The world is full of pain and rejection for all of these reasons, but heaven is the opposite. In heaven, there is abundant unity with the greatest diversity. But what then do these people in heaven have in common? What you see that they have in common is they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And then you see what they cry out about, salvation. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. While heaven is full of different languages and colors and accents and backgrounds, everyone has the same creed. They all believe the same gospel, that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They all believe exactly the same thing about God, that salvation, that entrance to, to heaven rather than to hell, it belongs to God alone. They all believe in one God. They all believe in his sovereignty because our God sits on the throne. And they all believe that his son is the lamb, their sin sacrifice. So for everything that they have that's different, they, they all have this in common, everyone. And what we need to notice here is that in heaven, when John sees into it, he doesn't see anyone who disagrees on this point. He doesn't see anyone who does not make this profession. Everyone there cries out in a loud voice and says this. And this, this is hard for us to take because in, in our culture, in our day and age, that's just not fashionable. The dominant philosophy of our age is, you can't say that. You can't say that, that Jesus is the only way to heaven as long as you're a good person. It doesn't matter what you believe and you know, whether you're Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or Jew or whatever, you know, they're all going in the same direction as long as you're as a good person. The problem with that is that when John actually sees into heaven, he, he doesn't see a group of, of secular, irreligious Scottish people in the corner saying, well, we're not saluting Jesus with our, with our palm branches or anything like that, you know, we're not saying salvation belongs to our God. We got here because we're basically good people and we, we gave money to save the whales and, uh, and we're not here because Jesus is the lamb who paid for our sin. He looks into heaven and there's no one there like that. Everyone is, is saying salvation belongs to our God. Everyone is wearing white robes. Everyone is holding palm branches, which is also a, a kind of Hebrew expression from their culture. You know, when, when Jesus... Um, went up to, to Jerusalem and everyone held up palm branches. It's what you did in their culture to salute a victorious king. And everyone in heaven is doing that for Jesus. There's no one in the corner saying, I, I got here because I'm good. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically a good person. That's not the way heaven works. John does not see people there who follow legalistic man-made religions 
who genuinely believe that they have found other ways to God apart from Jesus. What we see here is that heaven is for Christians. Third point, we ask, well, who are these Christians? Sub point one, um, point eight, these Christians are countercultural people. You see it in, um, in verse 14. Uh, an, an elder comes and asks John, who are these people? And John says, well, sir, you know, you tell me. And he says, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. What's implicit here is that these are people who have been persecuted. These are people for whom being Christian has made life harder rather than easier. They have had to live by values that were at odds in many ways with their societies and their cultures. They have had different moral standards. They've had different intellectual beliefs. They've raised their children in a different way to how their neighbors would. They've treated their husbands and their wives differently. They've treated their parents and their friends and their siblings differently. And for all of that difference, they have often felt the coldness of rejection. They were countercultural people. And when we hear that, maybe our first reaction is to think, oh, okay, so these people have got to heaven as a reward for the lives that they've lived. They've been, you know, the kind of antithetical Christian. You know, they say, they say that, I say this, and I'm always digging my heels in, in my culture. And, you know, they've worked hard living counterculturally, and because of they've denied themselves all these things and they were willing to suffer a bit, because of that they've earned their places here. Is heaven just for moralists and for legalists? It's the question. And the immediate answer is, is no, not at all. Because point B here, who are these Christians? As well as being countercultural, they're all they were also sinners. Verse fourteen B they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, engage with the text for a moment here. Remember what we said a minute ago about the role of the Lamb in sacrifice. If you wanted to make atonement for your sins, you killed a Lamb in your place. You shed its blood. So wherever you find a Lamb present, a Lamb that's blood has been shed, it therefore necessitates that you have someone, that you have a sinner present as well. That's the only reason that the lamb would be killed. Someone is there who needs a sin sacrifice in order to find forgiveness. And that's what you find in heaven. You find people whose purity, whose perfection is not self-generated. It didn't come from themselves. They aren't there because in their lives on earth, they kept themselves perfectly. They're there because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice has had a cleansing effect on all the wrong in their lives. Heaven is for sinners. Heaven is full of ex-sinners. People who in this life had committed all kinds of wrongs, who repented, who trusted in, who trusted in Jesus as their atoning sacrifice. And now they're fully redeemed and they'll never sin again but they are nonetheless redeemed sinners. They've been forgiven by God through Jesus the Lamb. And because of that forgiveness, point C, they are servants. In verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night and in his temple. Now the sense here in which they're constantly serving God 
is, is important. It's interesting. Um, because this, it was written in, in Greek, and Greek has different words for serving and for service. And there are some words that are much more kind of being a slave. You know, you have to serve. This is not that word. There's, there's, there's a word in Greek that's really distinct for, for serving a god, for serving a deity out of, out of worship and respect and admiration. And this is that word. It's a word that crops up a few times. You know when Satan tempts Jesus to bow down before him and worship him and do what he wants. And Jesus says, you shall serve the Lord your God alone. That's the word. It's doing what someone says because you are overawed by how awesome they are. Um, Paul also uses the same word when he speaks about his, the whole of his life being lived for God. When he writes of the God whom I serve. It's always this idea of everything you do being directed to God, being for God out of admiration, out of adoration. Those in heaven are servants. They've come to the firm conviction that God is considerably more important than they are. And because this great God has freely lavished grace on them, because he forgave their sin, because he let his son be the lamb for their atonement, they gratefully want to serve him forever. They are constantly gravitating towards God's throne because they're captivated by him. And the reason for that is point D, because they are God seekers. Verse, verse 15 there. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. This is the thing that drives heaven-bound people. The thing is, they want God more than anything, more than anyone. He is the primary thing they want. He is their goal. Heaven-bound people know the reason they exist. It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The reason for their lives is not primarily self-centered because they've realized who God is. And when they realize how much more awesome, how much greater he is than themselves. It, it makes no sense to, to, to live with the, the goal to glorify myself and enjoy myself forever. These people were made to give him glory. And he's also their chief joy and their pleasure. They enjoy him above all else. So for people like that who know the reason that they're alive, there's only one place that you can fulfill that purpose, your chief end. And that is heaven, because heaven is where God is. If you were made to glorify him, if you were made to find your greatest enjoyment in him, there's only one place to go, one logical choice, and that is heaven, because that is where God is. If, you're, if your chief end is to glorify God and in, to enjoy him forever, and not just for 10 minutes, it, it just won't do to be where God is for 10 minutes, to be in his presence for for just a second. You need to be in his presence forever to do what you were made to do forever. You need to live with God face to face. And that is what's being expressed here in this phrase. He will spread his tent over them. And again, it's, it's classic Old Testament language and imagery. In the Old Testament, um, before Jesus came, there was, there was a thing called the tabernacle, a big tent that God told the, the Israelites to build. 
And when they'd built it, God descended and manifested his presence inside there. So if you wanted to, to get God to be where God is, you go to the tent, get to the tabernacle, because God has, has put himself there. And then when Jesus comes, the, the, the tent, the tabernacle is gone, but we have the same idea, the same language. Because in Jesus coming to be God with us, in, in John chapter 1, it says, the word became flesh, Jesus became human and made his dwelling. Literally, the word is spread his tent. The same word here, spread his tent among us. It's the same word and the same idea that, that God's desire for intimacy with us is such that in Jesus, he came and spread his tent among us. So we could see the face of God in Jesus. It's that idea, coming to be with someone, because you need intimacy. It's like when you, when you fall in love with someone and your interest in each other grows, it ceases to be enough you know, that you simply know that that person is, is also alive somewhere else on the planet, but you, know, you never see them. That, that just won't do. It doesn't suffice. You, you need to, to be together. You need to be face-to-face you need to live in close proximity to each other. You need to spread your tent together in the Bible's language. And that's what we find here. These people in heaven are God-seekers. They want God more than anything else so that they can glorify and enjoy him. And God is saying, I will spread my tent over you. I will come and live face-to-face with you forever. Heaven is for God-seekers. There's a really important point that comes tied up with that. And it's, this, it's that it's possible to seek heaven, even, even the, the Christian notion of heaven, in an entirely unchristian way. Um, as humans, we have a, a, a basic kind of default problem, which is that we are idolatrous and that we love ourselves rather than God. I... It's my problem, it's, it's your problem, it's, it's just our hearts are idol factories, as, as John Calvin once said. And we constantly and naturally idolize other things instead of worshiping Jesus, and we replace Jesus with them, and usually it all comes back to, to ourselves. And if, and if you don't use the gospel continually to put that sinful tendency to death over and over, you can have this problem where you want heaven, but you don't want it as a God-seeker. You want it as a self-worshipper. You know, the, you have this idol, which is yourself, and you want the idol to be housed in the best possible location. And hell is awful. Heaven is, is superb. Therefore, you want your, your idol to be in heaven. And Jesus and God and Christianity is just the means to that end, of, of making sure that you get to heaven so you, you, know, you can luxuriate in your own, in your own idolatry. You don't want heaven because your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You want it because your idol is, is yourself that you love to pamper and worship in beautiful places and, and God becomes the means to that end. That's not, that's not radical enough in, in discipleship. Um, what's wrong with it is that heaven is for God seekers. Heaven is for people for whom heaven is, is a means to an end of of having God spread his tent over you. Heaven is, is, is a means to an end and God is the end. So you can glorify and enjoy him. Heaven is for people who want God at the center. And the point I'm making here is that we should all want heaven, of course, but want it because God is there. 
and he can spread his tent over you. Now, lastly, our fourth point, very briefly, I'm going to go through four sub-points here about what God-seekers get. Uh, what's interesting about these heavenly God-seekers is they come wanting God more than anything. And because they get God first, everything else comes after that because God is their satisfaction. They don't enter his presence with a shopping list of, well, hello, I'm glad to be here. I want this, this, and this, and this. They don't come like that. They just come saying, I want you. I want you to spread your tent over me. And, and look at what God gives to them. Verse 16, firstly, God gives them an end to their suffering. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them or any scorching heat. Physical discomfort is gone. It's, it's finished. There's none of that there. The sick will always be healthy. The tired will be tired no more. The hungry and thirsty will always be satisfied. God will meet all their needs. Point B, they will have the lamb as their shepherd, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Remember, at the start of the sermon, when we were looking at those who have reason to fear God's judgment, they're afraid of the wrath of the lamb. The lamb is an object of terror to them. But for, for God's seekers, the lamb is a shepherd. No wrath, no fear, just, just Jesus leading you, loving you as a protector and as a good protector it's it's useless if your protector strikes no fear into the hearts of those he's protecting you from it's 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 like in in the last narnia film prince caspian um the the interaction between lucy lucy's the youngest of the pavensi kids i think uh, and and aslan aslan is this huge lion lucy is this young sweet little girl um and there's no fear between the two of them. And there's this intimacy between the two of them. Face to face, he is her protector. But there's this great scene at the end of the film, just after the huge battle and, um, and the forces of darkness are all chasing them. And then Lucy runs across this bridge. And, you know, she's, just, she's there on her own, this tiny girl um, with this huge army of, of evil creatures facing her. But... Lucy doesn't really see this because she's looking forward at the army in front of her, attacking her. But Aslan is standing behind her and he's huge. And, you know, the army that's rushing onto her is stopped. And the Aslan that she loves, that is, is her shepherd, that cares for her, that strikes none of that terror into her heart, has the power to, to terrorize all of those that are persecuting Lucy. And that's, that's like what we have here. The lamb that struck terror into, into everyone else with his wrath is a shepherd to those who trust in him. Everything that we sing about in Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, will be eternally realized with Jesus in heaven, where the lamb will be our shepherd. Point C, the, the lamb as shepherd will lead us God's seekers to living water. He will lead them to springs of living water. And this living water is, is a reference to God. Throughout the Old Testament and the New, God speaks of himself as living water. It's in Jeremiah, for example, the classic example, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God speaks of himself as living water. Jesus also speaks of God as living water in a couple of places. It's, it's a God reference. And if you are a God seeker in heaven 
the, the lamb who brought an end to your suffering will shepherd you. And the way that he shepherds you is that he leads you to God in heaven. He introduces you forever to all the, the wonders of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and how they love each other and their, their wisdom collectively, their, their oneness, their unity. That is what Jesus will shepherd and lead you into in heaven. If you're a God seeker, Jesus will give you God in heaven. Lastly, no more tears. There are no more tears. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The finality here is amazing. Beautiful. Once you're in heaven and God promises that he will spread his tent over you, he gives you the lamb as your shepherd, and Jesus does that, leading you to God, and there is perfect intimacy between you and God forever. You're now finally in the place where you can do what you were made to do. You can glorify and enjoy God forever. There's no more sin. There's no more suffering. There's no more death. There's the triune God, and there's you, and there's countless others who love Jesus as well. And there's nothing to cry about. No more crying. Literally, in, in the Greek original, it says that God will erase crying. God will obliterate it. God will make it obsolete. And that, that, that's the closure there. Heaven is for those who need not fear God's judgment. It's for you if you are a Christian. It's for every Christian, everyone who believes that salvation belongs to our God. Those Christians in this life, you can see them as countercultural. You can see them as sinners who trust in Christ for their forgiveness. You can see them as servants who, out of gratitude to God, want to serve him. You can see them as God-seekers, as people who are drawn to God to worship him. And this is everything that is ours if we are in Jesus. There are some questions to reflect on in the sheet that you can take home with you. But at this point, we'll bow our heads. We'll respond to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we hallow your name. We recognize your holiness and your greatness. We thank you that you are the God of heaven and earth and that through the gospel that you give us hope and you give us great reason for it that we need not be lost for all eternity without you and unable to uh, do that for which we were made to bring you glory and to enjoy you. Lord, we thank you for the hope that heaven gives us, particularly at a time like this when we have lost someone that we love from our congregation. We thank you that heaven gives us uh, great comfort at this time. We pray that it would bring comfort to, to the Boyd family. And Lord, we pray that it would bring comfort to us all. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.